Howdy. I'm Kate Cavanaugh, and you're listening to The Groundwork Podcast. This begins an exploration of connectedness, looking at our own nature through the lens of nature. Mind, body, and soil. How's everybody doing today? These intros have been such an experiment for me. I'm still not sure exactly what I want to say, but I always want them to catch me in a really honest place. Today I'm sitting here and I'm staring out the window as as rain pours down in my part of the country, and it's getting to be planting season. I don't think there's a better way to start planting season than with this podcast. This was a really special podcast to me because I got for the first time to actually sit down live with a good friend of mine, Alicia Brown, from Edible Uprising Farms in Troy, New York. When we moved to New York, one of our first things was we wanted to find really great produce. And I I expected there to be an abundance. I think that it was this idea of coming from the West and coming into somewhere with a a very different type of soil, a very different climate. I had some expectations about what the produce might be like, and they largely went unmet. And when we found Ben and Alicia at Edible Uprising, that first bite that we had, I think it was a carrot, I don't even know what it was, was one of the most beautiful bites I've ever had. And every bite thereafter, their carrots, their tatsuoi, their rapini, their onions, right? Everything was so chock full of flavor the best produce I had ever had anywhere in the country. And it really piqued mine and Josh's curiosity around what they were doing so different. They're on this teeny tiny one acre farm where they they produce a lot of food for a lot of people. And this podcast was a real chance to sit down with Alicia and learn what is so different about their program. But it's also a deep dive into some science around soil, some ideas about the way that human health and soil health are directly correlated. It's about finding what it means for a farm to be human powered and how we take care of the humans that power them. It's about beauty. It's about organization. It's about a healing journey that is really outstanding. And I think that you're going to enjoy this podcast as much as I am. It really it really got me excited to shift the way that I think about our little homesteading garden that's just for us here on the farm and to reach a little bit deeper and to get a little bit more curious about what I want for soil, what it means to steward soil. And I think as somebody who raises livestock and who has worked in the meat industry for a really long time, the idea of stewardship feels a little little simpler, right? There's soil stewardship, but then there's also the stewardship of these lives that you interact with on a day-to-day basis. And you have all of your, all of your stock, whether it's the tiniest member of a bee or the the biggest steer on your ranch, these are all lives that you're stewarding. And I, when I sat down with Alicia, what I really saw was the depth of the lives that she's stewarding, the 
one billion microorganisms in a teaspoon of soil and the acre of soil that they are stewarding and the innumerable countless lives that that actually represents and the amount of connection through the fungal networks and the mycelial networks that are bringing all of this nutrition into their produce. And it really struck me, especially when she talks about stewarding a least plot of land, that they're building soil that isn't, that they might, may not be around for, that this might be somewhat temporary. And we get into this idea that like, all soil belongs to all of us and none of us at the same time, right? That, that we are all deeply connected through this system and to steward the soil. And I really mean just the soil to steward that is to steward, to steward life itself. And I think that Alicia really unpacks so much subtlety and this is something she really gets into. So much subtlety and so much intention. And I think as I go forward, it made me really want to reach into my imagination about the lives that we steward that we don't see. It's so easy to account for the grass that we see shift and change. It's so easy to account for the weight that we see a pig or a steer put on throughout its life. And it's easy to account for the beautiful carrot that starts as a seed on our farm and becomes a full-fledged carrot. And on the other end of things, it's so easy to see the steak on our plates, whether we're consumers or farmers. It's easy to see that salad and and to imagine these tangible aspects of our food system. But what is illuminated for me here is the more intangible, but deeply connected and deeply alive aspect of our food system that soil represents. I can't wait for you to listen to this and to hear your thoughts. If you just loved Alicia as much as I did, you can find more and jump into the conversations they're having on their Instagram at Edible Uprising and EdibleUprisingFarm.com. And as always, if this podcast resonated with you, if you found a connection through this podcast, a connection to something something greater, back to the soil, please, please share it with your friends and consider us consider leaving us a review. Can't wait for you to hear this one. And please let me know what you think. Tell people your name and the name of your business. Yeah. So I'm Alicia Brown and my husband, Ben, and I run a farm called Edible Uprising in uh, Troy, New York. It's just across the Hudson River from Albany. At our farm, it's a little different in that it's right in the city limits in Troy. So it's just like two miles to the downtown. And we lease one acre of land exactly. And we grow about 250, I think it was like 270 different varieties of vegetables and flowers um, on this one acre of land. And it's very intensively managed. We don't use tractors out in the field at all. So it's almost entirely human powered, which means that, you know, the beds are really tight together. The plants are pretty tight together. And so we're able to grow a huge amount of food on a small amount of land. And we grow primarily for 
CSA shares, which is community-supported agriculture. So people sign up at the beginning of the season and get a box of vegetables every week for 26 weeks of the year. And then we also supply a bunch of restaurants around uh, Troy and Albany and Saratoga Springs. And we're entering our fourth season. So it's been an amazing experience, more work than we've ever done, Mm -hmm. but also we've learned a lot and are learning more every single year that we do this. You do. And Tell people how many shares you do off of this single acre, because I think that's a, it's a pretty astronomical number to me <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So we do about 150 shares per week on the one acre. So we have a hundred members that sign up for the annual share, and then we have weekly and monthly subscribers as well. So And then we also do a virtual farm stand. So we're packing even more boxes than that. But it's all because, you know, we were, were able to stay really organized. We don't have much fudge room because we have this one acre and we have to make the most of it. And because we don't have to make room for tires of tractors, it means we can grow a lot more on this acre and be able to feed that many families each week. And it is, it's interesting. So for people that know, this is this is my first time getting to sit down in person with somebody. And we actually have been to Edible Uprising and have seen it in person. And I can I can attest to the fact that it is the most high and tight, organized, most beautiful operation I've ever seen. And what's funny about our relationship is that we're actually both from Colorado and have (laughs) both found ourselves in upstate New York. And Ben and Alicia were the first friends that we really made up here. And we got a chance to go down and to try their vegetables. And to be honest, it was... I've been shopping at farmer's markets for over a decade. I've been working with a lot of farmers over the years. And that experience of eating your vegetables throughout that first season that we lived here was truly different. And I mean that there was a marked difference in a carrot, a marked difference in your lettuces. And you could just see that there was something about what you guys were doing with the land that was really special. And it it comes through in just more flavor and more aroma. I think you can smell your vegetables and there's something truly alive about them. And I I mean that like there is a, there is a vitality in them that is really spectacular. And so I can attest to the, the tightness of the operation and, and the effects of it. Yeah. I think that's one of the most rewarding parts of farming is that, you know, if you put in extra care and work and emphasis on different things, you can actually see the outcomes and taste the outcomes over time. And, you know, we have both, you know, I have a background more in homesteading and gardening and Ben has a background in large scale organic or small scale, like, you know, 30 acre, more kind of conventional organic. And we have seen the difference that you know, farming practices that really, really focus on soil health, the outcomes are huge in terms of flavor and in terms of, you know, the health of the plants and, you know, it cuts back on 
you know, insect pressure and disease pressure and actually makes it so farming is a lot easier when you really put in that extra work to take care of your soil. And so we get that feedback from a lot of people. Like, I've never tasted a carrot like this. I thought, you know, I'm 50 years old and I've never tasted food like this. And it's be- the proof is in the pudding, you know, and we t- go the extra mile to, you know, cover crop and make really good compost and really meticulously measure and monitor the health of our soil and make sure that that is coming through in the food that we're producing because it's not an emphasis that a lot of farmers have. And I think it's because a lot of farmers don't realize how important that is and how that really translates into flavor and then the nutritional value of the food that they're producing. But we're starting to kind of understand that that is so key and hopefully it starts becoming the norm in agriculture. Um, but I know you've gone a long way with soil that you do, that you do yearly soil samples throughout your property, mm-hmm. that you work with somebody who's soil food web, Elaine Ingham, soil food web certified to actually look at the compost that you're producing on farm, which I also want to get into because you're, I know that your compost is pretty special. But with soil, where do you even begin to consider looking at it? Like what's that first step of, I'm curious about my soil and how I'm impacting it. What's that first step? Yeah. I mean, you know, it usually starts with kind of an intuition. Like so many farmers know it's like, okay, this field really produces well, this field doesn't. And you can visually see that in the health of your plants and the productivity of your plants in the insect pressure, the weed pressure. And, but then you can go deeper into kind of, you know, the the conventional way is just doing a, a soil test that just looks at the nutrients, the plant available nutrients in the soil. And that kind of gives you kind of a broad picture. It doesn't tell you everything, but you know, you can see the plant available nutrients, which are the nutrients in the soil that, you know, the plants will be able to utilize, but then you can go deeper and be able to actually start looking at the bacterial load and the fungal load of these soils and start beginning to understand, oh, there's so much more nuance and being able to understand the life in the soil, which is really, really key in making sure that the plants are being able to access the minerals and compounds that exist And so, yeah, we're really lucky in that our friend who actually we leased the land from now, he has a soil lab right on the farm. And so we're able to look at the compost that we make on the farm and look at the soil in different areas of the farm that we're struggling with, for instance, and look at it under a microscope and be able to visually see, oh, this soil is really lacking fungus. This is really lacking minerals. This is really lacking the bacterial, you know, life that we need to be able to grow healthy food and healthy people, you know, and being able, for me, the first time I looked at our soil under a microscope, it just like, it was, it totally changed everything for me because I had always had that intuitive sense about what's working and what's not working and being able to see our practices translate into 
this image on the screen, being able to see the density of the bacteria, see these really good organisms, see the fungus. It was like, wow, this stuff matters, you know? These practices that we employ on the farm are making a huge difference. And we see that. But now being able to, like, see on a microscopic level that it matters. Subtlety matters so much. That's something we say on our farm so much. The power of subtlety. Things that maybe don't feel like it would be a big impact. They really, really matter. And I think that's something we've really kind of lost touch with. And so our our motto on the farm is everything with intention. Mm. And it's basically like giving care to each aspect on the farm, to the soil, to the the way the farm feels when you walk through it. You know, feels really good. <laughs> every part needs care and attention, and you know, cumulatively, it all adds up to this really, really nutritious food and also a beautiful experience on the farm. I want to. There's so much in there that I want to unpack and I don't want to lose this thread of soil. And I I believe there's about 1 billion microorganisms in a single teaspoon of soil. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And I, I often marvel at the idea that in some ways we know more about space than we do about the soil beneath our feet. And to actually get to make contact in that way, to, to pull it up on a microscope. And it's something that, I mean, you're, you're in contact with it every day. Like you're working the soil, you're in there with your hands and you develop that intuition, but to really get this chance to see that realized and then to start to adjust your practices to nurture this whole universe that is really the, the foundation and, and the basis, I mean, the life of your farm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really, really special. And, you know, it's, it's not like every part of our farm has like perfect soil, <laughs> which yeah. is also really interesting to us. There's an area on our farm that they had like put in a water pipeline, you know, 50 years ago. And it meant that all of the subsoil had been drawn up to the surface. And this area of the farm, even from a drone footage, you can see there's a strip of yellow plants, you know, like it's really struggling. It's because the soil is really depleted, really lacking. 50 years. and that 50 years. That long of a an impact and i'm sorry that that kind of <laughs> that floored me for something for trauma and and it is kind of in a way trauma to happen to the soil and to have that impact last 50 to 100 years and then my first thought was if we scale that up to conventional agriculture and yeah. what we're doing in large scale tillage and and just how we're treating soil in general that's a very shocking Yeah. yeah. I think the encouraging thing is, you know, we identified this area of the farm where the soil was really struggling and being able to measure and see the progress as we cover crop it, as we don't till it, as we add organic matter, as we, you know, introduce like beneficial nematodes and all sorts of good bacteria into the soil. 
we have been able to see so much progress year after year and measure that progress and then intuitively see it as well. And it's really encouraging even just thinking about like the scale of mass destruction that we've inflicted on the soils in this country, especially that there is a possibility to, you know, really care for it and rejuvenate it and uh, regenerate it. And the tools are out there and it's just a matter of, you know, applying these principles on a larger scale, which is hard, but I really think it's possible and completely necessary because the soils in this country are so depleted and that means our food is depleted. That should be really scary news for a lot of people. Yeah. I wanted to talk about that because I, when you talk about the nutrients that are available in the soil for plants to uptake, that is the that those are the nutrients that are available then in a carrot or in a head of lettuce or in a, in a crown of broccoli that relationship between plant and soil, and then that relationship between plant and human and the nutrients that we're then receiving. And that's shifted wildly in the last 50, 100 years, how many nutrients we can get, how much we can get from our food. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason that like so many older people come on our farm and say like, I haven't tasted a tomato like this since I was a child, you know? And It's because, you know, especially through the use of chemical fertilizers, pesticides, and then also like the intensive tillage that a lot of farms practice on their soils. Every time that they apply chemicals and till, you're destroying this delicate network of life under the soil. And that network of life is what helps bring nutrients into the plants. Plants and bacteria have this beautiful communication where they exchange nutrients, essentially. And so when you disrupt the life under the soil, it cuts off. Even if there are nutrients in the soil, it means that the plants have difficulty uptaking Mm. those nutrients because there isn't the biological life that is necessary Yeah, there's all those subtle relationships just within the soil and between the soil and that plant. Yeah, yeah. It's everything so much more delicate than we think it is. You know, even like on our farm, like we never step on the beds. We make sure the ground is covered at all times, either by mulch, cover crops, or by you know, the leaves of the plants sheltering the soil from, from raindrops, even, you know, raindrops can be a source of compaction. So, you know, it's, it's a very delicate thing that we haven't been treating delicately. So on our farm, our emphasis is, you know, caring for it and like babying the soil as much as possible and really recognizing how fragile it is and yeah, how resilient it can be. Yeah. I love that balance between delicacy and resilience. Yeah. And my, one of my questions is how do you, how do you nourish your own intuition about this and about how to both nourishing your intuition as well as enriching your education so that you better understand how to be a steward of the soil so that you understand how to build a space where where your walking matters and how to how to rotate crops i know that even within your little acre you rotate crops in order to better nourish 
that soil system. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I really love about farming is you never have the answer. Um, and that every year we're learning more and we're discovering more and, you know, we're only four seasons into this farm. We're really, you know, we had done farming previously, but we are learning new things every year and we are leaning on mentors for this. We are leaning on other farmers and like a free exchange of information and, you know, conferences, reading books. There's so much new information about soil science, about even just about farming in general. How do you care for your body? How do you care for other people on your farm? You know, how do you make this a sustainable farm, not only in the soil, but like for the people and animals around it. And so, you know, we farm for 26 weeks uh, a year. And then in the winter, we rest essentially. And we spend that time doing a lot of learning because there, there's a lot to learn about this. And we're still discovering new things every year um, and experimenting a lot on our farm each season with what we've learned in the winter. And sometimes it works and a lot of times it doesn't. So, you know, it really keeps us on our toes and is really, really a rewarding experience because no two days are ever the same. No two seasons are ever the same. Yeah. And I mean, weather influences that and having a dry season and having a wet season, especially here where that's more variable. Yeah. I think Josh and I talk a lot about that, I guess it's kind of a refractory period of experimentation that in farming you have these, you know, for vegetables, one year periods of experimentation to kind of see how things work out with animals, you know, one, two, three years. And it's such a beautiful thing. You get fairly immediate feedback, but there is also kind of this waiting period and I'm curious about that, but before I lose it, I really want to ask you, is there a way to measure nutrient density in in vegetables? Yeah, it's amazing. It's it's called a refractometer, refractometer. And more and more people are understanding that like an orange is not an orange and they've actually done research, you know, everybody thinks like an orange is full of vitamin C and they've done research looking at that and they found that actually many oranges contain no vitamin C. It is not a given that what we think the nutrient density of a food is, if it wasn't grown in soil with life in it and these nutrients in it, it does not mean that it has it inside these vegetables or fruits, which is when I first heard that I was shocked it's shocking and horrifying. Yeah, yeah. And so there, there's actually technology to be able to measure. You basically like put it through like a garlic press, like a little, you know, plant tissue or um, vegetable tissue. And it basically like sends light through uh, the tissues and it's able to read the like nutrient density of these foods. And what they're finding is a huge range and it is directly connected to the soil health. There's also a, a similar instrument that's used on soil. It's called a microbiometer. And it does the exact same thing with soil health, where it looks at the 
you know, the biology, the d- density of life in the soil. And what they found is it translates immediately between those two instruments. If the soil is healthy and full of life, the food will contain a huge amount of nutrient density. It will be healthy and full of life. Yeah. It's the same. Yeah. Yeah. So it's another situation where I think so many of us intuitively know that, but being able to measure it in that way really brings, brings it to the forefront and is like, wow, this is something we really need to pay attention to. And farmers need to learn that like, this is, this is a tool that you can use. Are they accessible tools? Like, are they, they're fairly expensive. That's one difficult thing, you know, that, I mean, I would love to see, you know, local agricultural cooperatives being able to offer that to farmers as a resource on their farm and to make that information available to customers. Ag extensions at universities. I mean, this feels like a, a really simple thing for a university to take on and then lend out with educational support. Exactly. Yeah. We've considered buying them on our farm. We haven't yet, but it's a huge expense, you know, like we're looking at having to buy, you know, other little bits of equipment on our farm, paying our employees better. And, you know, in the end, it's, it's hard to prioritize that, but being able to have that resource as a farmer, I think would be critical and having that be a measurement you know, organic certification to me in a lot of ways really means nothing at this point because it has become looser and looser. And somehow that's the measurement that we care about instead of like, let's look at whether this is nutritious food coming from nutritious soil, because otherwise what's the point, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's almost empty calories at that point. There's nothing nourishing. Yeah. And I think when you see People that are really deficient in things, when you see the rise of vitamin and supplement companies even, exactly. this is looking to replace something that we would have received from food and water. I think that's important to note too. Yeah. But this is something that should be available and should be, I, all I can think about is that I want to put together a group to buy that, buy these tools yeah. to be able to look at that. Yeah. But it, it directly corresponds to a massive decline in human health that we've seen over 50 years. And something I know Josh and I talk about soil fertility and human fertility are directly correlated. When you look at declines in sperm counts and when you look at declines in female fertility, it corresponds really well with declines in soil density. Yeah. I, and, and this is, it's really important to see our, our food should be medicine. Yep. And it is, it is no longer medicine. I mean, these minerals and nutrients are the building blocks of our cells. You know, it's so critical that like what we're putting in our body can help every aspect of our, of our immune system. I mean, one encouraging thing is they've also found like a direct link between what we were started talking about at the beginning of flavor and nutrient density. So mm. one indicator, like even if you don't as a consumer don't have, you know, a fancy machine to, you know, read the nutritional density of your food, if it's full of flavor, just like mind blowing flavor, you bite into this, you know, pepper or something and it is just so full of flavor, likely 
it is more nutrient dense and they've found a direct correlation between that. So that's definitely something to seek out. If you find a farm that like, you know, they're transparent about their practices and you taste their food and it is mind blowing flavors that maybe you've never like nuance that you've never tasted before in vegetables or in meat. There's something there and your body knows it and your body's drawn to that. So that's a really cool way to be able to navigate the food that you're eating. If there's a lot of flavor, like I tried this kumquat the other day (laughs) from a friend's parents in California. They had mailed some and it was, it was amazing. I thought about that kumquat for like weeks after trying Mm. it, you know, just like Wow. <laughs> yeah. I love those food moments where you take a bite of something and it, and it recalibrates your, your taste buds for what that thing is supposed to taste yeah. like. And I, I had that experience eating one of your carrots and, and, and I've had some, what I thought were good carrots before and it, and it did, it recalibrated. Oh, okay. This this is what a carrot is supposed to taste like. And I've heard that, you know, with Western daughters, with our meat, people coming in and getting our pork and, and feeling like this is the pork that I haven't had in 50 years. Yeah. Yeah. When you find yourself craving and like salivating over even the thought of that pork in the past, you know, or that carrot, that's a really good indicator. And it's like so many of these things our bodies intuitively know. It's kind of like me as a farmer looking at my field, that area where the water main was, I knew something was wrong and different there. I knew the soil was struggling. There's so many indicators. And then again, looking at it under the microscope, just confirmed that, but you, we all know, and we can all feel it. And we're, you know, once you've tried these foods and tried the potential of what they can actually be, it's hard turning back. (laughs) It's really hard turning back, but you know, it's, there's not enough farmers doing these things, not enough farmers that know about these practices. And we really hope that like this new generation of young farmers are just, you know, really emphasizing soil health and can really run with this. But the reality is we have millions of acres of farmland that are in really rough shape. Yeah, they're in dire straits. And and so I think what's heartening about this is that there is incredible resiliency. And I know we've seen that with animal agriculture, how much bringing back cattle into a into a prairie can really bring life back to that space but when we're talking about millions of acres of farmland that need to be regenerated revitalized and i know you've thought about that some what is what does that mean well it's hard i mean you know there's some pioneers like gabe brown he's a farmer in iowa who you know came from a more conventional background and is looking at ways of you know bringing in cover crop and no-till methods of grazing cattle and raising corn i think he raises corn and applying these principles to a larger scale and you know, it's, it's a, it's a big, big question. You know, we're on such a small scale. It's pretty easy to implement these things, but. (laughs) Yeah. But, but at a large scale. And I think that's, I think that's part of the problem solving and an experimentation that has to happen with this generation of farmers is that we have to be willing to experiment. And in saying that, I think we also have to 
have investors that are willing to help fund experimentation. Yeah. I, and I, I do want to add that because I think that that I always feel like a missing piece from agriculture is true investment. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of venture capital for tech companies and there needs to be a lot more venture capital for farming. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, you know, we were able to lease the land that we have started the farm on for years. We were looking to buy land and if we had bought land, we would have sunk all of our money into the purchase of a property and wouldn't have had any money. I mean, it takes a lot to start up even a small farm. You know, you need a greenhouse, you need irrigation system, you need refrigeration. There's so many investments and having to buy land before those investments is really hard. So for us, even though it's like hard investing so much time and energy into soil that isn't quote unquote ours, it has allowed us to be able to start this farm. But yeah, it's if only, you know, you know, the NRCS offers some really great grants to farmers, but I'd love to see more money so would I. offered to people that are doing really good practices and yeah. improving soil. Yeah. And because, towards experimentation too, yeah. with, with a lens that there will be things that work and things that don't work and there will be having to find those things. Yeah. You guys did recently purchase a property though. We did. Yeah. So in 2020, um, we found 32 acres of vacant farmland. 25 of them are tillable as they say. And it was in rough shape. <laughs> and that was part of the reason that we were drawn to it. You know, it had been sitting on the market, I think for 20 years and it had been in corn and the amount of depletion of soil, there's about a foot. The fields are sunken almost about a foot from loss of soil, from erosion. Wow. You know, just corn year after year extraction based farming. Yes. Yeah, synthetic fertilizers. Yeah. Probably yeah. things like glyphosate roundup. Very likely, very likely. And you know, all around the field edges, just exploding with invasives. It was in really rough shape, but we were able to afford it. And we were also up for the challenge, you know, so much of our farmland looks like this right now. And we are really confident that we could revive the soil. And so even within a year of owning this property, we immediately put down a perennial cover crop on these really, really scary looking fields that almost looked like a desert. It just looked dead. And so we put down this co perennial cover crop mix on these fields that were inoculated with a rhizobial, <laughs> I <laughs> yeah, wrote it down, <laughs> a rhizobial uh, bacteria. Interesting. And it basically, in a year's time, you wouldn't have been able to recognize this land. Even just a year of cover cropping it, you would dig down into the soil and it was airier and alive. And there were, you know, wildflowers and it was it was a really amazing experiment to be able to see one year where you actually are able to, you know, let the ground photosynthesize, let the ground rest, and let the organisms under the soil really just do their thing and start to come back to life. And now a few years into it, 
this land has a long way to go, but it's already transformed enormously. And it's really, really encouraging to see that, you know, even in a couple of seasons, these, the soil that was completely dead, so hard that you couldn't even like, you know, drive a stick into it within a couple of seasons is bouncy and airy within and one alive. Season. Yeah. Within one season. Within one season. Like I want to, <laughs> yeah. like, I want to give you that credit, like within one season. And yeah. I think, I think that level of resilience speaks to both your skill. And I think it also speaks to how much nature wants to be back exactly. in balance, wants to find that homeostasis and life and vitality. And so it, that stewardship is what's missing, that, that it can come into play. It just needs somebody to come in and to see it and to really work towards bringing it back. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's such a misconception where so many people think, oh, we need to take humans out of the equation and just let nature like heal itself. And yes, in a way that's true, but there has been so much human intervention that basically if this land had just lay fallow, it would have been taken over by these invasives. It would have you know, weeds would have gone crazy trying, desperately trying to heal the soil. You know, there would have been a lot that would happen, but at a certain point we've intervened so intensely that it really takes human intervention to kind of steer it in the right way as well. And, you know, being able to walk on this property, even in the winter right now, this thick, dense mat of, of this perennial cover crop covering and protecting the soil and all of this wildlife moving through this property. It's, it's really, really encouraging to us. You know, there are days and as so many people feel, I'm sure about the climate and the projection of the climate crisis, it can be really scary, but also being able to see even on this small scale, that change can happen so quickly and nature can start like turning the other way. It's really encouraging. And, you know, while all these plants are in the ground, they're photosynthesizing, they're pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. atmosphere. So again, if you think about these principles applied on a larger scale, it's like, wow, there are solutions here and they can happen fast, you know? So it's been really rewarding. And we also feel fortunate that we still have our one acre farm here in the city that we can continue to run and we can take our time and heal this other piece of property and do everything we feel right and not push it too soon and let it, you know, come back to life. I was going to ask, because you have a really unique opportunity to take four years of experience in a similar environment and really building soil and you get to apply it to this, this new property and area. And I was wondering what you're taking and what you're leaving. Yeah. I mean, when we first bought the uh, larger property, we thought we would scale up and we would, you know, start a bigger farm. And what we've learned is we want to stay really teeny tiny still you know just because we're gonna have more acreage that we could cultivate we have found in our own personal lives you know it's like we don't have to have this huge crew of employees for most of the time it's just been Ben and I running this farm and feeding all these people and we really enjoy this work why would we scale up so much bigger and have to like turn it into something that's 
you know, unmanageable. So someday we hope to, you know, move our farm operation over to this property when it feels ready and still stay really small and really tight and being able to manage it without too much work. It's still a lot of work, but it's always a lot of, it's, (laughs) it's a labor of love. Yeah. And I know you know that. You guys have such a, as you were talking, you guys have such a beautiful long-term vision. And I think you take so much care in the way that you build the foundation for yourselves. And whether you're talking about soil or whether you're talking about your business model. And I was thinking about the, the timber frame barn that you, that you erected on this property. And I mean, just harkens back to old timber frame barns in a way that we don't build barns anymore. Like everything has this aspect of care and vision, vision even maybe beyond your life, just vision deep into the future of things that are built to last soil that's built to last and barns that are built to last. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we really, really, I I think when you farm, you kind of see yourself as the small blip on this piece of land that you're working. You're just passing through. And you see that in the way that land has been destroyed. And you see that in the way that land has been like resurrected. And we really, our little blip on these places, we really want to be able to leave a good mark and leave it better as we found it. And, you know, even just the act of like planting a tiny tree that is basically a stick in the ground. It's like, we'll never experience this really as a tree, but being able to, you know, think far into the future and see the benefits that stem from these small acts really matters to us. You know, being on leased land where the soil we won't be working with the soil forever, but we hope that like another farmer could take over and it could feed even more people. And, you know, the benefits of these small acts of care really, really have huge impact over hundreds of years. And that's what we always emphasize. And that's what we always think about. It's easy to kind of do quick fixes and things that really, you know, pay off quickly. (laughs) But going slow and doing things right is always our approach. I think too, as you were talking, all I could see was that dense network of soil. And I think about this every once in a while, that the soil that's underneath me in New York connects back through all of these mycelial and fungal networks all the way to the soil in California. And so while that's not, you know, while you may move from this lease and it won't be yours, like there is this sort of collectivism about about soil to me that it's all ours and it's none of ours yeah at once (laughs) absolutely absolutely yeah and we really we really feel that on our farm it's like even you know it's like so many people are eating from this soil so many people are interacting with this soil and it's kind of like our all of our responsibilities as humans to be able to like steward the land, yeah. even if you're not a farmer, like to be able to feel connected to this network of like this is the again the foundations of all of our lives. Yeah, this is it. Yeah. So like soil health is is everything's health. It is it's human health, it's environmental health, it's it's the foundation of everything. And I think that 
the beautiful thing about connecting to it is that you get a chance to feel your connection to everything else. Yeah. And to feel that that wonderful smallness of being a like a delicious blip here on earth. Yeah. Yeah, I mean soil is healing in so many ways to the point where they've actually found that like children that have access to like touching and even breathing in like the smells of soil have like lower cases of anxiety and depression. It's like there is power here. So even if you're like in a New York City apartment and you're like, why does soil really, I, that doesn't matter to me. It, it actually has a huge impact yeah. on who you are, how you feel, and how it sustains your life. So this is, and when it relates to climate change, it's like there, it's this kind of like slow burning thing in the background that actually kind of like unites a lot of the issues that we're facing in society today. And that's why it's like any person that I can talk to, it's like, this is important. This is really important. And we're still just learning about it, which is really wild to me. Me too. We have NASA that studies planets beyond ours that understand the atmospheres of other planets. And yet we don't understand this thing right beneath our feet that connects everything on earth and that fuels us as humans and cares for our, and we don't under, we don't understand it. Yeah. Yeah. Which is an opportunity too. It's both mind boggling, but it's also an opportunity to be like, okay, this is it's time to dig into this and to better understand the universe that exists beneath our feet. Yeah. Yeah. And how much subtlety is packed into there. I want to bring <laughs> that back because I thought that was so beautiful. Yeah. One of the things I really wanted to ask you about was human power. And as we talk about sustainability of land, sustainability of planet, I want to talk about sustainability of the humans that work it too. Yeah. And what it means to have a human-powered farm, because that's a lot of bending. It's a lot of lifting. It's a lot of caring. And I know that you and Ben take special care to ensure that you can farm for as long as you want, that that your your health span and the span of time that your body is still in good condition and I want to talk about that because I think as farmers, that's really important. It's really easy to just burn through this singular resource. You only get one body. And you guys, you guys put a lot of attention and care into your bodies. Yeah, if you think about agriculture, it's all of agriculture, most of agriculture that we know now and in history has been about the exploitation of the human body. And, you know, the lean towards industrial agriculture was this way to mechanize it, to take the human aspect out of it. But then you lean that direction and it's depending on fossil fuels and it's led to a huge problem, obviously. So we're in this juggling act where we either exploit the human body or we use fossil fuels to fuel our farms. And either way, neither of those are good. And that's what we're doing in agriculture right now. You know, in big ag, we're having these giant tank-like yeah, tractors. And combines. then, you know, migrant workers breaking their bodies for minimal to no pay. It's really scary to us. And when we started our farm, we really wanted to 
think about how do we make this sustainable for ourselves? You know, we talk about sustainability so much. It's a word that's thrown around so much in agriculture and never once has it ever been linked back in any of our education or any of our reading into like, how do we find sustainability in ourselves and our bodies and then how we move and, you know, grow food with our bodies. You know, we were really passionate about human powered farming, mostly because, you know, like we're able to grow more or you don't have to use a tractor. We don't have to buy a tractor. That's great. And it's better on the soil, but it's also great because like we get to move our bodies every day. We get to in really dynamic ways too. you know, like there's, you know, you'll hoe for a little while. It's a repetitive action, but then in 20 minutes you're doing something else, but that can be hard on your body. And so, you know, whenever I have somebody come on the farm, a volunteer, and I'm teaching them how to do something, the first thing I talk about is, okay, let's talk about how we're going to move here. Let's talk about how we can sustain our bodies and feel comfortable and stretch in between. And let's talk about this because this is not something that I hear other farmers talking about. And it's not in education in farming, you know, it's, and so you know, we found out pretty quickly running this farm that like, it's extremely hard work. And unless we really took care of our bodies, the way that we were taking care of the soil, that it wouldn't be sustainable. And so one of those decisions actually led us to buying a tractor. And that sounds really counterintuitive. But one thing we learned is there, you, a lot of farming is moving heavy things from yeah. one place to the other. And we were doing that for a long time. Tons and, and tons, l- literal literally tons. And tons. I, I, like, I want to I wanna really illustrate that for people listening within a day, moving over the course of hours, literal tons of whatever it is. You wouldn't believe how much weight that, and it's just, it's so repetitive. And, you know, at first we were kind of pushing through that and saying, oh yeah, we can do this. We can totally do this. But at a certain point we realized that, no, if we're going to be farming until we're, you know, in our seventies, this is an area where we can get a tractor just to move the heavy stuff and save our bodies. You know, I've I've had a really severe back injury in the past, not before we started the farm, but I I care about sustaining myself and being able to be practical. And I was so against tractors when we started, so against them. But then when I realized that this could actually like make it so like we have more energy and more ability to be able to, you know, farm and harvest by hand, it it really changed my mind and i'm really glad that we did that and sometimes it's it's a matter of you know finding that balance but yeah it's 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 a conversation that i really think that farmers need to like share more openly and i i, I don't even know of any books that talk about kind of self care as farmers and even just like once a week get off the farm do something enjoyable and fun that's away from the farm That's actually really key, you know, like levels of depression and suicide amongst farmers around the world is huge. And it's because it's, it can be really stressful and it can be really intense physically. It can, you know, isolating. 
very isolating too. So, you know, most farmers are out in rural areas and, you know, being able to learn how to care for your body, care for your mind should be as important as of a discussion as soil health and yield and varieties and all the other things that farmers love talking about. And we're definitely not perfect. We're learning. And last year I was, I, I have chronic Lyme. I've struggled with it for several years. And in the spring I got really, really sick and wasn't able to be on the farm. And it was a huge wake up call to us especially just like, wow, what do we do if one of our bodies isn't able to function? Because this is what we rely on, you know? And so those questions about like adaptability and care. And one thing we've learned is our bodies matter the most in this equation. And that I don't care if that thing doesn't get harvested. If you're not feeling well, that matters more than that bed of carrots right now. And we would never push further than we felt like our bodies could handle. And that's been really, really empowering for us to be able to prioritize our health. And we have one employee and we care about that employee way more than we care about harvesting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I think it's really hard to be able to step back and say, this is more important. All right, you know, and, and Josh and I talk about our relationship is more important for those of those of us that are doing this with our partners. Our relationship is more important than something getting done and our bodies are more important. And I think it's hard to cultivate the long-term outlook. I know that Josh and I have talked a lot about this and you and I share some of our struggles with Lyme and, and with injuries and, and health We talk a lot about health span and that when you're young and you're vibrant, it's really hard to care about, especially for Josh, who's healthy as a horse and really isn't affected by anything. You and I tend to be more canaries. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Really sensitive. How do you cultivate a sense of being in service to that future body, being in service to 20, 40, 50 years from now, wanting to have good mobility, wanting to have health in the form of the nutrients that we take in through our food, right? Like what you eat now is deeply affecting how your body is going to be down the road. We know now that Alzheimer's starts manifesting in your 30s and that the care that you take in your in your diet, in your mental health, in your physical health matters. And I think something you said really hit me and Josh and I did the same thing. Part of why we wanted to farm was so we could be outside working with our bodies all day so that we didn't have to be behind a desk. Yeah. But that comes with this other piece of things, which is you're using your body as a tool. Yeah. I mean, on the farm, you know, I, I call myself the maintenance queen because I just love like sharpening all our hand tools and oiling all the handles and really taking care of all our tools. And it's like, so how do you flip that around and look at your own body? And you have to become like a maintenance queen of your body. And that means, you know, like really taking care of every aspect. Like I remember when we first started farming, all these older farmers said, wear knee pads whatever you do, wear knee pads. And I remember kind of brushing them off. I was like, I'm fine. My knees are fine. Within a year I had developed knee problems and I was like, wow, 
I'm going to start listening to mentors, to older farmers, and really taking that to heart. Everybody said, wear a hat, wear long sleeves. And over time, getting so many burns and stuff, it's like, and even being able to work longer in the field because you feel a little cooler wearing long sleeves, it's like, wow. At first, I was I was hesitant about taking this advice, and it really kind of like rolled off my shoulder. But now I'm every time an older farmer or one of our mentors says something like that, I really, really listen because I saw it happen. Now I have knee problems, and now I take really, really good care of my knees. And I do not go out in the field without my really nice knee pads. And I do exercises to strengthen my knees. And, but that's after the fact, how do you like care before the fact? And that's making sure, you know, we're eating really, really well. We're taking, we're stopping in the middle of every day and taking an hour to eat and rest. Yeah. Not a rushed meal. Not, not just, not just shoveling it in, but actually taking a moment to allow your, parasympathetic nervous system to come online and to, to really rest, digest, take a moment. Yeah. You know, a lot of farms that we've been on, they don't stop for lunch. You know, maybe you have like 15 minutes to like shovel something down or you work through lunch. That's very, very common. And so these, these like small acts of self-care, it's, it's has to be such a priority as you know, a culture on the farm as a culture in your household, you know, every other farmer that we meet, I tell about like, this is what we're doing to try to take better care of ourselves. What are you doing? You know, like trying to bring this up as a subject more. And I think more and more it is becoming a dialogue because, you know, like, what do you do in the winter when you're not working? Do you face depression? Because I do, you know, it's hard not working sometimes. It's hard being isolated Let's talk about that, you yeah. know, like it's these really are things important. so many farmers deal with. Yeah. I think too, it compounds a lot of us are coming from cities Yeah, to be in a rural area and to live a very different way of life than maybe we grew up living. And so there aren't the traditions of a family that are passed down of, of things that you do in the winter. And, and at the same time, that winter is a really important opportunity to rest your body. And one of the things I really see you and Ben do is take the winter to rest and recover, to get some extra sleep and to really dig into taking care of yourselves because those 26 weeks, you guys are cranking. Yeah. Yeah. I've often said, I wish we could all live seasonally um, because that's how Ben and I have set up the farm and something we really appreciate, not only for our physical health, but our mental health and our excitement about work. You know, if we were doing this every single day, the same thing, like farmers in California, I don't know how they do it, but they farm every day. Like it's year round. It's intense. But for us being able to, it's intense work, you know, during the season, it's intense work. But then in the winter, we're able to really settle in, move inwards, reconnect, and take care of our bodies, learn more. And through that time, even just get like really bored can be really helpful in terms of, you know, having the motivation to start again. And having this cycle, it's it's similar to almost like teachers, you know, having the summer off. It's like if they had to teach you around, I don't know how many teachers would come back. But being able to have that time to reflect 
and restore your body and restore your mind is really helpful. But it also comes with challenges. Like often farmers are really hard workers and find identity in that work. And so when you're suddenly not working, I know especially Ben really struggles with this. Well, who am I? What am I doing? What am I even interested in out of farming, outside of farming right now? Like, how do I find solid ground right now? And it can be really, really hard. And I know it's something that a lot of people struggle with, even with like seasonal depression. So yeah, we, we every winter have what we call like a little farmer retreat with a couple of our other friends that are farmers. And it's in the deepest, darkest months of the year. And being able to come together and reflect on the past season and, you know, compare notes and then also just like share these types of struggles is so helpful. You know, like connecting with other people with shared experiences is very healing. And more and more we've learned seek advice from other people that do what you do, you know, ask them questions about things that you're struggling with tell them your experience and it's it's been really rewarding for us to be able to to do that i think the more that we get a chance to open source ideas and to really use people as sounding boards that are in our industry or even outside of our industry you're building number 1 you're building connection you're getting out of the myopia of running and being in your business and being just, you know, right in front of it. And so you get that little bit of perspective and, and you've come back to that a couple times as we've been talking is just talking to other people about the way that they're doing things. And, and it also helps us find a sense of camaraderie or not being alone in what can be a very lonely occupation and passion because it's both most of us are here because of passion yeah more than anything yeah I think you know more and more I'm seeing farmers like have you know struggles and like what we what we have as a motto on the farm is like other people have solved this problem and so whenever we can we are like you know calling other people and asking them questions and asking advice and you know, being able to openly share and exchange information as farmers is so critical. And for us, social media has actually been like a really great resource for that, you know, being able to like ask questions of other, oh, I see that your tomatoes look that way too. Mine did this year. What did you learn about that? You know, and it's actually like become a really great resource for us to be able to connect with other growers either in our area or in our region or even in the country. And again, not just about growing things like, you know, people, how do you deal with chronic illness and being a farmer? How do you deal with nurturing your relationship and working together? How do you deal with making sure your employees are happy and cared for? How do you deal with, you know, caring for your own body? There's so many things that you can't read in books because it's just happening too fast. You know, these discussions are happening in real time and being able to connect with other farmers, even through social media has been like really, really wonderful for us. And being able to like share small, oh, like this is something we did. Maybe it's helpful to somebody. I don't know who, but maybe. And often it is. So I think in a lot of ways, that is getting back to the homeostasis of being a human being. It would have been that we lived in small towns and villages where we constantly got together 
the full moon or harvest or wherever it was to transmit this knowledge together. And I, I really see you building these avenues for that information to travel again and to get back to that idea of we really are just knowledge and information sharers as a human species. We want to transmit and to share and to learn. And it's in communication and it's in community that that happens. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, it's like, you know, we all used to be part of agriculture. We all used to be involved with agriculture and growing our food, harvesting our food, eating together as a community. And it's kind of crazy that like, you know, two or three people would be feeding that many people. It's, it's really kind of strange that that's how we do it. And more and more, I realize it's like, what we're doing is really new and different because this is not traditionally how agriculture was supposed to be. And like, how do we bring back those aspects of community and connectedness and in this really kind of odd agricultural system that we have? I mean, we're fortunate that we're in, you know, like right on the edge of a city. So we have lots of neighbors that are involved with the farm and a lot of our CSA members are involved in the farm. And those are moments where I really see like the farm come alive and like really kind of see it it going back to more of those kind of traditional roots where like if we have a big harvest and we need a hand, we call on people to come and help and we all do it together. And there's something really beautiful about that. And I really wish, you know, I see people, (laughs) so many of the people that we know um, that like eat from the farm talk about, you know, going to the gym and, you know, that's how they like get their energy out. And I, I really wish that like gyms would come and just work on our farm. You know, it's like, guess what? Gardening, farming, it's like getting a workout, but you're using that energy instead of that energy, just going into the air instead of you just breathing out all that energy and it doing nothing. It actually goes into cultivating your own life. That's really powerful. That's really cool. You know, like traditionally, it wasn't, we weren't going to gyms. We were hoeing and digging and harvesting and carrying. And, you know, a lot of the gym equipment that you see is actually just replicating all of those movements. They don't call it a farmer's carry for nothing. Right. Yeah. So when I have volunteers come on the farm, I'm like, oh, have you ever done, you know, this move in the gym? Have you ever gone on a row machine or something? Well, well, that's exactly what we're going to do here, you know. Meanwhile, and I think the flip side of that is that people that are coming in from the gym actually have something to teach us because there are so many times when I will physically stop myself and and do a proper squat as I lift, actually engage my abs because oftentimes I'm so in a rush, right? That I lose form. And when we bring form back to our bodies, when we engage our abs and dig in with our heels and lift from our glutes and squeeze them at the top, and as silly as it sounds, like that, when you bring proper form back into some of these farming activities. And so there, there's a shared information totally. that can happen there, totally. too. Yeah. That's another thing that I, it's like nobody ever taught me how to shovel. Like that was something that I spent a lot of time thinking about. Yeah. From a perspective of like, okay, I don't want to be putting emphasis on my lower back here. How do I make this, you know, how do I activate the good sets of muscles on my body? And it's like, wow, shoveling looks really different than you think it does when you actually care for your body. It looks more like a lunge you know, than like just bending over at your waist and like hunching down and shoveling. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so yeah, that is so true. It's there. It's another thing. It's like everything with intention, every way you move has to have intention. But yeah, I would love to see. I'd love to see that. Gyms too. just, <laughs> yeah, let's teach Move each other farm. something. You come, you show me how to do a really good deadlift, and we'll, you know, bring in all of these tomatoes together. <laughs> As you were talking, I had to wonder do you think that seeing all the connectivity in soil, like seeing that community and that network where there's so much communication between plants, between the soil, between little microorganisms within the soil that are really building that system. Do you think in some ways you've just scaled that up into how you think about community? Because I think sometimes we talk about the communities of bacteria within soil and it really is like our our culture in a lot of ways is just a fractal and, and we're just a bigger version of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think growing and nurturing community is something that is so missing from our society right now, whether it be in agriculture or just in general life, you know, we've outsourced so many of our needs to, to companies, to corporations. Oh, if I need to go to the airport, I'm going to call an Uber instead of like asking my friend to drive me there. Oh, if I am sick and I need groceries, I'm going to, you know, get some, you know, whole foods to send me my groceries. And what I think we need more and more is no, make those connections. And so something Mm. like we do with like the people on our our neighborhood and our friends right around the farm is if you need something, reach out to the people around you, you know, on the farm, if we need something, we reach out to people around us and ask them, we don't try to like outsource this. You know, if we are struggling and we need a hand or if our neighbor is struggling and they need a hand, it's direct communication. And it's something that like, I think is really missing and that we, you know, we definitely see that on our farm, the the importance of connection. And we, you know, try to nurture that as much as we can around the farm as well. I think there's a big lesson in there, even just for me, around learning to ask for help, which is something that it's a muscle that you have to use yeah. and that you have to learn how to use. And and that in a, in a community, it's reciprocal. Yeah. And again, when I was sick last year, that was something that was really hard for me. You know, it's like, you know, I can always do everything myself. We've run the farm, we've built the farm, but that was a point where it's like, no, we really need to ask for help now. And, you know, all of our friends and community around us really stepped up and was able to like support Ben and our one employee running the farm by themselves after we had scaled up a bunch. And it was a huge, huge, uh, struggle, but you know, we, the flexibility that we've built into what we do and then the support of the community was able to make it a really successful year. And I think there's a lot of power in that. And so if you think about like more small farms kind of emerging with this kind of mentality, that's kind of, that's a really beautiful kind of future to imagine where like, yeah, these can be places where like people can lean on each other and like call each other to like go to the airport or I need help with this. Can you come help, you know, paint my garage or something? You know, it's a beautiful model for like rebuilding these really lost and frayed connections that we have in society. I love that. 
I just, I love that. I have a, I have a burning question for you. One of the things that you incorporate into your growing season is flowers. And I love that you do things for beauty's sake. And I was thinking about when you built your barn, you built it with a really special attention that you wanted your wash station to be beautiful because you spend a lot of time there and you wanted to surround yourself by something that felt good, that felt beautiful. And I'm, I'm not entirely sure what my question is, but I really want to hear how you incorporate beauty or why you incorporate beauty and, and I don't know what that means. Yeah. I mean, so much of what I care about and emphasize a lot of the time is like functionality has to be efficient, has to be streamlined, but the bottom line is like, this is our life and this is what we're experiencing every day. And surrounding yourself with things that are beautiful and completely unnecessary sometimes is an act of self-care. You know, like we are on an acre of land, every inch counts. And yet we've dedicated one thirteenth of the farm to flower production and a big reason and a big, the main reason is because it brings us a ton of joy and being able to walk into the farm and see this explosion of color is just joyful and wonderful. And it's, you know, it's, it's a great income source, but in the end it's a lot of work and it doesn't really make sense on our scale, but, you know, finding these moments that, you know, your livelihood and what you do every day is not only like fulfilling on a personal level, but like being able to find joy and beauty and what's around you really matters. I mean, that's a big reason that, you know, when you, you described coming onto our farm and everything's really tight and really beautiful. And a lot of that is for our own personal gain. Like we really want to be surrounded by these moments that make us stop, you know, on a hot day, like we're exhausted and being able to like stand back and like take in this beautiful scene. It really matters. It really makes a difference for your mental health, for our clarity of thinking. And so everything that we do and everything that we kind of design around the farm, we think, okay, is this functional? Is this efficient? Is it beautiful? Does it make us feel good? how does this make us feel? And it's kind of the back to the everything with intention thing. It's like, if we can make it beautiful, if we can make it enjoyable, let's do it. Because it that subtlety, that change will make a huge difference over time. And so even, you know, 2020 was a really hard year for us. It was just like a lot of work. And, but the moments that stand out from that year for us was at the end of the day, we would sit on the edge of the field and just look out over the field and take in the beauty and abundance of this farm. And it was just like you would feel all of that stress and all of that tension melt away. And it really matters, you know. And that's something that like we we really try to carry through everything we do. I think that's such a beautiful sentiment and uh, something to really take home. Like how often do you stop, take a step back and just enjoy what, what you are working with, what you are co-creating with nature to enjoy that space. I think that I know that I don't do that enough. So I think that's a really beautiful message. 
I know we're running tight on time and that you need to get back to your plants. I (laughs) would be remiss if I didn't mention how well organized and how well planned you guys are. The thoroughness with which you use spreadsheets and (laughs) planning in the winter. And that I think that 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 does contribute to what you've built and to that high and tight nature of things. Yeah. Well, one thing that kind of sets our farm apart from a lot of other farms is just the diversity of crops and varieties that we grow. A lot of farms that are around our size or around one acre usually specialize in kind of fast growing, quick turnaround crops like radishes and greens and, you know, things that grow quickly, you harvest and you can plant something else. But one thing we really wanted to be able to do was grow all the food that we love eating. And so that means watermelons, winter squash, celery, chicories. artichokes, chicories. <laughs> I'm just, I mean, I'm, I'm you voting name for your chicories. And pretty much we grow it if it's an annual. And the difficulty there is it's highly complex. Like I said, I think we counted and there was like 270 different varieties that we're growing this year. And that could get chaotic really quickly. And so again, because we're on this acre, it's really, really tight. We're growing all of this diversity. It means that we have to stay organized or else it would just be a train wreck. And so part of what we do in the winter months is we, you know, we order our seed because of seed shortages. We have to do it earlier and earlier every year. And we look at our field and we basically put it all into a spreadsheet and What the spreadsheet does is basically gives us instructions for every single day of the season on whether a crop needs to be like planted, whether the bed needs to be prepped, whether it needs to be harvested, whether it needs to be flipped back. And so basically when we have time in the winter, we're able to plan out the entire season, plan out every crop, when it's going to be seeded, when it's going to be planted out in the field, how long it's going to be harvested, make all those decisions at the beginning, put it into the spreadsheet, and then that spreadsheet acts as our guide for the entire season. And what that does is it takes away so much stress, takes away decision-making fatigue during the season. And so in the winters, our brains are working like crazy, but during the season, our bodies can just work and we can just follow that plan. And it's it's remarkable how much stress that takes away, how how tight everything is able to be. And, you know, it doesn't always go to plan. Sometimes, you know, oh, the soil in that bed isn't looking great. I don't think we're going to plant the eggplants there that need really rich soil, you know. So we'll make adjustments throughout the season, but we'll always record all those adjustments. And then the next year we can look back and it's like, oh, that block, the soil wasn't looking that great. So maybe we should put something more like greens that don't need as many nutrients or something. So it's remarkable to be able to not only just be able to follow a plan, but also to have all that data years later and be able to see what we were planting and when we actually planted it. And, oh, on a wet year, this is what happened. This is how the plan shifted. On a dry year, oh, this is how the plan shifted. And that data has been just so valuable to us. And... Yeah, it's it's been 
it's been wonderful. Ben is really like the engine behind that planning and organizing for the crop management. And then another thing that we do is we don't go to a farmer's market. What we do is we sell all of our produce through a virtual farm stand. So that takes a whole other layer of organizing. There's inventory, like that adds in some real inventory. And I'm sure a thousand things I'm not thinking about. Yeah. And the reason we decided to do this is it meant that we never harvest a crop until it's actually been sold. And so it means there's zero waste on our farm. You know, a lot of farms will just harvest as much as they can, bring it to the market, sell whatever they sell, the rest of it they compost or hopefully like donate to a food pantry or something. But for us, we were like, no, we don't want to put in the physical labor of harvesting until we know where that crop is going. And so it means that people will buy the produce online, we harvest it, we pack it, And it's gone. And then if we donate to a food pantry, we can harvest that fresh. It hasn't been sitting out for 12 hours in the sun. And so it means that like twice a week, we're having to go out and count heads of broccoli and estimate how much weight is in a bed of arugula. But again, it means the next year we have hard data on exactly how much we have harvested down to the pound. And it's it's really valuable information, again, to be able to, on a wet year, these crops did not produce. They, or, you know, people didn't like <laughs> our peppers or something. You know, it's it's really neat to be able to kind of, you know, take all of this information that normally would be impossible to calculate and be able to learn from it for future seasons. It's such a beautiful thing to be in service to yourself as a future farmer too, that this is all that you're just building a backlog of things that will help you in the future and that will help your soil in a really wet year. I know last year was horrendously (laughs) wet. And I've seen what a difference it makes. I've also gotten to peek behind your spreadsheets and they, they are incredible. And I think that attention to detail is so beautiful. We're almost at time. Is there anything that I missed that you, it's burning a hole in your pocket that you want to add? Hmm. I could keep you here all day. I, <laughs> hopefully you'll, you'll come back and we'll do this again. I'm kind of blanking. That's okay. I have... I have I have one question and it, it that I ask everybody and it feels really silly to ask you this question at this point because I think that in a lot of ways this whole podcast has been about it. Uh but what does it mean for you to lay the groundwork? Mm. <laughs> You're fine. Take your time. Take your time. You're totally fine. You can also skip it because honestly, you answered it just <laughs> again and again. Well, I, I really, when I hear that lay the groundwork, you know, I think a lot about just sharing information again. Um, and something that we feel really passionate about is everything that we've learned on our farm and the results that we've seen from the practices and the benefits that we've seen from the practices, we're just eager to share that and let that information be of benefit to other farmers. You know, to be able to kind of build a culture of farming that really cares about the soil and could continue for generations, that sounds like laying the groundwork to me. And, 
you know, like we've definitely made an impact on this one acre and now our 32 acres, but being able to see other farmers take any information we could offer and apply that to their little plot of land over and over and over again, exponentially, um, that would be amazing. And being able to share information between each other and like the bacteria and fungi under the ground to be able to connect and like, you know, make this bigger than just these small plots of land and these small farms. I love that. Um, tell everyone where they can find you. You can find us, uh, our website is edibleuprisingfarm.com and you can find us on Instagram at edibleuprisingfarm. I, I can't thank you enough. I do hope you'll come back. I have about 42 other questions I'm dying to ask you. And I know that you have, you have plants to get back to. It's the beginning of the season. And, and I'm just really grateful to have had you here and just blown away by getting to hear how you guys think about farming and, and the, the whole philosophy behind Edible Uprising because it's so beautiful. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Groundwork Podcast. If what you heard today resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a review? This helps others find Groundwork. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at Groundwork Collective on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for clips from the beautiful song Over the Edge from their album, The Crucible. You can find them at All Right, All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music. <laughs>